hey, if your kid comes forward, even if he doesn't come forward, he or she doesn't come forward, and you see something that's sexually suggestive on their phone, don't right away attack them because they're up against multi-billion dollar algorithms. Are the ways this algorithm is changing the way you think and see the world and do your work? Is that actually what you and your soul want? That once you mix government in, you're going to have a certain level of problems. So only do it when you absolutely need to. Live your own life. Like don't let this whole nonsense system literally steer how you see yourselves, each other, and what you care about in the world. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more, more from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. Welcome, Max. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. I'm sitting here with Max Stossel. Max is a uh, award-winning poet, they say. We met, and you're also an advocate for, um, I don't know if we'd say a healthier social media or no social media. Whatever works for an individual. Yeah, certainly a healthier life with social media and better platforms that are actually caring about people. Right. We actually, um, I don't know if I told you the reason I wanted to interview you is to pick your brain on the algorithm so we can get this out to more people. Oh, well, (laughs) some disappointing news for you. (laughs) What, everything you knew, they changed? (laughs) Well, I am sort of out of that world of playing the game, but also I find playing the game to be so completely soul-sucking and not the point, but it is so easy for a human to get sucked into playing that game, and I would so much rather tell you to stop playing the game then i would tell you how to beat it <laughs> right right i was only kidding i know i'm just that's a serious answer <laughs> right you would tell us tell someone not to i would tell you like are the things that are getting you more views actually yielding more of like what you want to do in the world and what you want this to be are the things that are getting you more engagement the ways that you're literally thinking about guests the content you're creating the things you're saying are the ways this algorithm is changing the way you think and see the world and do your work is that actually what you and your soul want or are you getting caught in the I want more I want more views Um, and as someone who has videos with millions and millions of views I definitely notice for myself if it has a million views I want five million that's five million I want 10 million there's this infinite treadmill that is just constantly wanting more and doing the things that get more and it's just not filling so it's better if you have less than you want less the I think it's more that like if you can actually stay in touch with this is why I want to do what I'm doing and I'm going to do this regardless of how it's received I think that's the gold and it's really hard in today's social media world yeah it is it is I, I constantly find myself getting caught in it because on the one hand it is a way to measure reach which we do want to reach but on the other hand, it's very easy to uh, kind of lose yourself in that. I don't know if you saw a couple of, uh, maybe six weeks ago or so, I put a post on um, Instagram where I was having a conversation with a therapist. And in it, she said the word suicide because she herself had, I think, struggled with suicidal ideation as a teenager. And uh, one of our producers said, hey, you may want to cut that out because it's not good for the algorithm. And I was like, okay, it's not good for the algorithm, we should take it out. And then I had to take a step back and say, like, what's the reason for this podcast? And certainly one of it is to have real conversations and real conversations about topics that some people are less comfortable with, such as suicide. And uh, we almost committed suicide on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably have fun with that whole story. The <laughs> Um, it's, and that's really like whether it's censoring words, which is the most direct. And then I'm interested in the subtle nuanced ones of where it's like, Ooh, what, 
attitudes or uh, perspectives are the ones that are popular? What are the things that we're afraid to say because of how they might be received? And are we being a little bit more extreme or like a little bit more preaching to our choirs because that's what's like going to work and get the hits in ways that we might not even realize we're doing in the moment. But I'm very interested in how is social media literally changing the people that we are and the stories that we tell, not just in how we do it on screen, but in how we interact with each other. Because even if you shut off all the social media, even if you said, I don't want this thing touching me and you just shut it all down, we are humans influenced by each other. And so still being influenced by each other, it still gets in. And so I'm very fascinated with that piece. Do you have an example? It seems to me there's some emotion behind your ideas here so is there an example of something you've seen that drives I think you crazy some of my emotion around it is how subtle and hard to describe it seems and how everywhere i feel it is and so i want to be like look at this thing <laughs> that is happening don't you all see this happening um but i've watched like in art art is one good example i have watched like i've watched myself and i've watched others post something have it get a certain amount of attention and then post something new or different and have that not be not get the numbers not get the likes not get the hits and then i've watched my own emotional reaction of like maybe i'm not as good as i was anymore maybe this isn't interesting to people maybe this isn't what people want from me and had that conversation with artists all over the place where sometimes it's just literally the algorithm change has nothing to do with you at all sometimes it might be some version of that but i've just watched that impact which just the number has a big impact and on something as vulnerable as like art can be or as telling somebody's story can be i know that you're so passionate about people telling their stories and then one iteration of that being received one way and then that being some standard even though why is it the standard but we turn it into the standard and then not living up to that and just like the complicated internal emotions of that it's just it's a mess it just feels like a mess and i don't think many of us are talking about it and i don't think many of us are even aware that it's happening but then we go off into the world and change the literal ways we talk to each other and i'm like hey whole world is different and maybe for this totally nonsense bullshit reason do we actually want that and with my work with kids that's a lot of what I'm trying to help them do is like live your own life like don't let this whole nonsense system literally steer how you see yourselves each other and what you care about in the world can you be your own person it's harder to be your own person I think than it has ever been because of social media so is, is the problem the algorithm of social media or our internal algorithm because in the example you gave it was like social media is going to be what it's going to be sure meaning Yes, there's an algorithm there and there's certain words censored and they are um, catering towards certain types of uh, videos, emotions or whatever else. But we are going to put out videos and some are going to get more views and some are going to get less. And if we don't learn how to regulate that, then we're always going to have... A problem. Totally. And so we need to learn. It's, you know, it's never one thing or another. And I don't think social media created many of these problems. I think it mostly just poured gas on a lot of embers. I think it poured gasoline on a lot of fires that were already there. Um, but let's use a different example of like something super common. This person has tagged you in a photo. That notification, which is let's use kids, going to kids' phones all the time. We're used to it. Hey, someone just took a picture of you or said something about you to your entire school. 
would you like to see what it is? You don't have to. You have self-control. And, you know, you don't have to see what someone just said about you to your entire school. You don't have to check it. You don't have to fall into this thing. No, no, no. You're fine. You're fine. You don't right. have to look. Like, at what point is, are we asking a whole lot of self-control from people? Which, yes, let's build that muscle. Let's get better at this. Also, this is kind of preying on some pretty core instincts and, like, social desirability and popularity popularity and in-group, out-group. Just, like, so really deep human stuff stuff i mean looking big picture and we've we've gone on a road now right away we can dive in here but so i would love for a social media network to be actually caring about our social lives like what would it look like for the same data to be optimizing am i creating new experiences you wouldn't have otherwise had that you later rate as meaningful introduced you to new people in your life that wouldn't have been there that you're now grateful or in your life if we're taking those sort of human metrics and using the same amount of data towards outcomes like that what an amazing magical tool social media becomes it becomes this like the best personal assistant we could ever possibly ask for even within things like information distribution what was your intent in coming into this atmosphere are you trying to learn more about x y or z how well did we help you do that and let's optimize for these things don't some of those social media um say apps exist but they're just not that downloaded I don't know of things that are doing that. And also the amount of data that is required to do that well is so much. And it's the type of things that like Instagram, Facebook are the ones that are closest to, you know, TikTok. Those are the ones that are closest to having that kind of data. And there's not the incentive to operate that way. Um, But I would personally absolutely pay for a network that was thinking of me in that way and like dealing with intent with my values as the priority and the goal. But when attention is the goal, we'll all drive to the side of the road. We'll all like look on the side of the road at the car fire. It doesn't mean we want a world full of car fires. And so attention is just not a very good measure of like right success or goodness in oh, no, a digital society. A yeah. Terrible thing that attention is the, is the metric, but being that it's unlikely that you change the platforms. Sure. So you're walking into a school. What are you looking to leave? them with a couple of things one so is you do a lot of right you oh yeah that's so i spend a good amount poet, of time so you use poetry and you use um maybe a more relatable way to get your message to kids than you know a scientist walking in and drawing algorithms on sure and so and with the kids i'm sometimes but rarely actually doing the poetry i mostly come in as someone who used to work in the industry not a parent or a teacher saying you kids and your phones rah 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 <laughs> say no hey like Uh, I used to work in this industry. Let me show you how some of this is designed so that you can make your own decisions and better decisions about how much and how often you want to be engaging with it. Some things that I hope they take away from it are one, like we really dive deep into Snapchat, which is like the number one way teenagers are messaging each other is Snapchat. The way that adults think of text, we think of like uh, teens think of Snapchat. They're just like, that's where I go to talk to my friends. Just like a lot of features in there that add a lot of extra stress and manipulation. Um, Streaks being one very basic one. Of, I'm not sure what that is. I send you a message on Snapchat. You send me one back uh, within 24 hours. These little numbers and emojis build. And if we don't keep sending a message every day, then that streak breaks. And it starts to feel like if we break the streak, are we really friends? Um, things like best friend scores of the person I message the most has the highest best friend score. You might remember how important it felt to like, who's my best friend in middle school? Things like right. that. There's like lots of little design features within Snapchat that's like, add a little bit extra stress that isn't about their communications at all and is very much about 
getting them to use Snapchat more. And I try to highlight things like that, things in these other networks of, hey, do you want it to literally just like move some of the conversations <laughs> off of these places that are manipulating you so intensely over to like regular messaging apps? Please keep using tech to use to like talk to your friends, but maybe do you want to choose the room that you're doing it in a little bit more based on things that care about you? And with TikTok and Instagram and social media, like I am trying to get them to wake up to realize, hey, are you literally living your life based on what's going to get the likes? Like, are you looking around at the world based seeing captions in your brain? Um, and like with your body image, I show them this, a pizza being photoshopped into a hot girl in a bikini and like just talking about the fakeness of these social platforms, showing them stories from teenagers who are talking about how messed up their lives really were while they were showing off on social media. I just try to like instill a, hey, we're all doing this super fake thing. Do we maybe want to like, rethink how much of our lives we're giving to this system. And I certainly don't solve all the problems when I go into schools, but I've become a very good starter of this conversation. Schools will often use me to change their phone policies where it's like getting phones at a school for the day. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, that's so, a very nice takeaway that happens. Let's let's put that on the side because I do want to get back to, to sure. that. Do you talk about um, who you used to work for and what you used to do and exactly what you saw that was so off-putting to you? Um, yeah. And so the, the app I was working for was a small social media company called Ocho. We were going to be the Instagram for video before Instagram had video. Um, and we weren't that good at this. We were doing these tricks with like tens of thousands of people, not millions. Um, but I saw that we were playing the same game as everybody else was playing and we just weren't as good as these other companies were at it. And so I talked to them about that. Um, I didn't really have like an aha moment. It was more just noticing we're making decisions that, are influencing the amount of time you spend on our platform, but you didn't choose that. You didn't choose to spend more time on our platform here. We kind of made a choice and now that's influencing you out in the world, but our goals aren't the same. Well, hold on. Like, is that a thing that we want? Um, and then to notice the whole ecosystem worked that way. And I met Tristan Harris. You might've seen the social dilemma. Um, mm -hmm. And he really started that movement. I was helping him however I could. And we were getting all these emails from parents and teachers being like, what the heck do we do about this whole smartphone, social media thing? And I thought, okay, maybe my perspective can be helpful. And so for now, like seven, eight years, I've been giving these presentations to teenagers and helping to start that <clears throat> conversation. That's awesome. I know there's an organization in, um, the Jewish community in Crown Heights, where I was raised, I forget what they call themselves. I know there's one in Miami also. I think, in, right, um, I think um, most mothers, whatever, like against phones or something. Hmm. And like what they're the trying mad to do version for phones. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. And what they're trying to do is um, kind of raise the age at which it's um, common to have phones. So, what are some of the policies that you try to? So that's like a, in terms of what parents can do, that's a very big one is like, we think of these things as phones, but like a phone where you can call somebody and text somebody at what age does a kid need that? Probably can give that pretty young, just like a device that allows communication. Fantastic. But we're not talking about phones. We're talking about supercomputers, self-comparison machines and porn machines very quickly. Right. And so what is the right age to give our kids a self-comparison machine, porn machine, and supercomputer? That's a different question. I don't know what parents would say about what the right age is to do that. And so there's something called Gab Phone, which is like just a good phone for kids that has GPS and music and some other things, just not the unfettered access to the internet. Um, and so like delaying it, I think is really great. And when I started doing this work, the question was, is 10th grade too young? Now I'm getting is, is third grade too young? So like that's shifted over a very short amount of time. Right. Yeah. Um, and so what age that really depends, but do 
doing it together as communities works. There's something called wait until eighth, which helps communities wait until eighth grade to get together and do that. Um, but so I think delaying is huge. I really do believe schools are like an eight hour opportunity that kids don't have many other environments in their lives where they can learn focus, patience, how to be without their devices, how to deal with like loneliness or boredom as it emerges without immediately running away from that. Like, oh, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I have to figure out what to do with that. And I don't have the option to just run away immediately. Yes, I would love for us to be teaching kids how to use this stuff, but I think we're less at risk of them not knowing how to use it and more at risk of them not knowing literally what life is like and what spaces and environments are like where it's not so dominant and so i think schools changing their policies to be away for the day is a really powerful uh action that can happen um and yeah and there are plenty of little things and takeaways turning off notifications that aren't from people trying to reach you getting a physical alarm clock not looking at it before bed so much there are little things we can do but on like the policy levels of just delaying and creating more spaces where these things aren't so dominant i think those are some of the just most powerful actions that we can take awesome how do you measure success um, right now, not well. Um, just like don't have good systems in place. It has been for years. I was just like being a poet and doing this on the side. And when people wanted me, I came and like, great, like, seems like this is helpful. Um, and this year was the first time we really scaled it up into when I go to an area, I'm gonna go to a lot of schools in that area. I've like, I'm booked for so far out in advance. Um, and we're just starting to figure out like what that really looks like. But some of these testimonials are just like, really heartwarming and sort of feed my own like sense of, okay, this is doing something. Things like, um, you know, watching how many of these kids in the room are like deleting TikTok from their phones and like hearing, Hey, like, yeah, I've been feeling really depressed and anxious. And I hadn't thought about how much comparing myself to all these girls on TikTok or these beauty filters was doing that. But I think it is. And I'm going to take a break and see if that changes things. Like, a lot of those messages and schools hearing me and then changing their policies. And so, those things are successes to me. I could probably get much more nuanced and like try to study it, but it's also, it's so like, how do you study something that is influencing so many different elements of life is a really hard question. Right. And it's also growing. Yeah. Right. Growing, so changing all the time. Right. It's different for, you know, 10th graders than it is for eighth graders. Like, cause then there's a new, th it's different for 10th graders now than it was for 10th graders two years ago. Like, Academic study here is just tough because it changes so fast. Doesn't mean it's not important. Right, Absolutely it is, target. but it's just, yeah, it's, and I don't think that's my strength. <laughs> right. In terms of your own personal use with phone, because obviously it's not only kids that. Yeah, we like to pretend it is, but it's yeah. not. I saw a, um, a quote. There's this uh, parenting person I, I follow on Instagram. She wrote, um, as adults, our kids compete with our phones for our attention. Our, our kids compete with their parents for attention with their phones. And when, when they become teenagers, the parents are competing with the teenagers mm. for phones. Obviously saying like, who taught these teenagers this way of being? And I, I got a problem with my phone. Totally, me too. The best, right, <laughs> like how you yourself use it. For me, like one of the things I've done um, recently because I started observing Shabbos again um, is just put that away. And then I find that the time I want to pick it up after Shabbos ends, like longer and longer, like, let me just, like, how long can I, I stay away from it? And sometimes for whatever reason, there's something that I need to go back to it for. And I immediately feel that. That pull. Yeah. And when this, when the Shabbos starts, when Sabbath starts for the first two hours, I feel the connection to it still. 
like I, I want to go back. Yeah, I was going to say it's more of like a like the beginning. It's a, oh, God, this is hard, right? And then as it continues on, then it's like, oof, this is nice and maybe I don't need it. And then as you pull it back, it seems to be the, the scale of it. The beginning of putting it away is difficult. And then after it's been away for a bit, it's like sort of the body remembers or something. Right. <laughs> it becomes a little bit easier. So what do you do yourself? What's your personal... Um so one of my favorite things is like, I think the physical alarm clock thing is really underrated. Just that first thing in the morning for immediately using the phone as the alarm clock. And then just pff, maybe you had it on airplane mode and aren't checking your notifications first thing in the morning. And yes, would love for us to have that self-control. But let's be honest, how many of us are like actually just hitting the alarm and then getting up and starting the day as opposed to diving in to all these digital worlds. So that's something I really love. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's also, I think it's easy to conflate phones versus social media. I think social media is the place where it's really the most challenging. I try to not be on for more than an hour a day. I have screen time limits on, but I don't, I don't succeed at that all of the time. And when I'm posting, I just try to really deeply consider why am I posting this? Why am I really posting this? Is this something that I actually want to be sharing and actually want to do for me? Or am I getting caught in this system and just trying to notice it and then be me in the system. To be honest, I very rarely, like, sometimes I'll go get hyped up, be like, yes, I'm getting back into this. No, I'm going to do it my way. I'll start. After a post or two, I'm like, nope, it's, it's just got me again. And so I'm walking away. <laughs> and so a lot of my relationship with it is just like taking a step back often and making sure I'm not letting this control me. But I'm still learning with my own habits and practices. And I do not have this all figured out. But I've gotten very good at helping people with the awareness of at least the first step. Interesting. I've thought about it as well from with my porn use and the porn dependency, which we've spoken about um, before, is that I got addicted to porn through, uh, what do you even call it, desktop, desktop computers. Hmm. Even a laptop we didn't have in our home. And I'm thinking what my childhood would have been like had I had, what do you call them, a supercomputer? A supercomputer, self-comparison <laughs> machine and porn machine. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and, that, and what I tell parents, which is just like, I show also, it's so funny, I go to these schools, I have to have a conversation with almost every school for the parent session where I say, hey, I'm going to show the parents what happens when I say I'm 13 years old, sign up for any one of these apps, and I'm just going to show them what comes up. It's very inappropriate. It's not something that's appropriate to show in a school, but I'm going to show it because this is what your kids are seeing right. all the time. And it's hilarious to me how many of the schools are like... Yeah, I don't think we can show this in our parent session because it's just very graphic, like, sexual content. It's not full-on porn, but it's, like, pretty well close, like, and, you know, and it's a click away. Um, and it's just, that's for a 13-year-old who did not seek this stuff out, but is immediately getting hit with all of this. And for teenage girls... There's a childhood, there's a documentary called Childhood 2.0. They start a timer of 90 seconds after creating an Instagram account and they're immediately getting DMs from like older creeps and like all sorts of that oh. going on in 90 seconds on a public profile. And for the young boys, it's more often like these bots that are pretending to be hot 18 year old girls that start flirting with them and linking them out to porn sites or in the darkest corners of it, like get them to send like dick pics and then hold that dick pic hostage and like ransom and blackmail these young boys. Oh, wow. um, and so like that's how happening like not so infrequently um and so like just the pathway from social media to porn just it 
it's there. That's happening very fast. And the kids do not need to seek this out. Not getting them in trouble for what they're looking at is so critical. Like if they're telling you about something inappropriate they saw, wow, thank you for telling me is 100% the move. In religious communities especially, I'm seeing the amount of shame and guilt coming from like kids who are in those porn holes. Like they're just feeling so bad and wrong for what they've seen when it often wasn't even them seeking it out and they have this natural curiosity and fall into it. The families that were able to say like, wow, thank you for telling me, let's talk about this as opposed to punishment are having a lot better times. So what have you seen in religious communities? Because I grew up in a religious community, a fair amount of my audience is religious and I've wondered, more than wondered, because I, I think I've seen it myself, is the correlation between porn use and um, religious messaging. Because there's definitely a correlation between porn and shame, and religious messaging often adds to the shame. So being that you I touched think, on that, yeah, I, I feel that And you know, I'm on like a pretty high level from where I'm talking. I'm not getting so deep into it mm-hmm. with specific families. But what it seems like is different in the religious communities is the amount of shame. By it's religious, like, you don't mean necessarily Jewish. No, if, just, re- just totally. Religious. Often Catholic, like some Mormon communities. Like, uh, yeah, I actually trying to think of like within the more like sort of orthodox jewish communities i've worked with i think this maybe has even been less than in some of the Mm. uh but i I don't have enough data to really make claims like this um but it just does seem like in the religious communities there's a deeper culture of shame and the shame element is what seems so painful and where you have these often young boys who are just like crying and suffering and afraid to tell their parents these things um if i were guessing i would say the piece that is different is the shame what kids are dealing with around cultures of different, you know, religious significance and religious severity is similar, what is experiencing, and then what is different is the amount of good and bad and right and wrong and shame that is put on on that action, which I think is a perversion of religion too, as my understanding of God and spirituality is like a very loving and accepting one of whatever might be happening and deeply forgiving. But I think a lot of religions have twisted that concept. Yeah, that's a, that's a different conversation. Different thing to get into. Should we shout it for, for the algorithms? Should we, shout, should we shout those terms for the algorithms? <laughs> shout every single one. The, um, you said something that I wanted to jump on, but you distracted me. That's distracted you with the religion comment. With the religion comment. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is an, isn't it, it is an interesting um, It is an interesting point. I felt it for myself with a certain amount of religious shame that I had to remove. But essentially your message is there to parents saying, hey, if your kid comes forward, even if he doesn't come forward, he or she doesn't come forward, and you see something that's sexually suggestive on their phone, don't right away attack them because they're up against multi-billion dollar algorithms that, like you said, within 90 seconds are already feeding them stuff. Totally. Because you mean they did anything. And if you're an algorithm that is calculating billions of different types of things, figuring out what is a teenage eye most likely to look on, click on, scroll, you know, not scroll past or just like spend time looking at, guess what's going to (laughs) rise to the top in that. And the algorithms have figured that out. So they can just open one of these apps. I'm so excited. I'm a 13 year old. Everyone's on TikTok. I get to be on TikTok now. Wow. I start scrolling two scrolls in i'm gonna see something that is close to porn like it's it's right there right away and if they keep looking at it for a little while longer oh the algorithm says oh look you liked this you want more of this they didn't have to actively like it you watched it for longer because you're a human 13 year old who's like what is in my face right now (laughs) and you're gonna see more of it so truly it's not their fault like that they are seeing this stuff and having conversations about it and we've talked about this as well but regardless of judgment statements about porn porn is terrible sex ed And so for this generation to be getting their sex education from this type of social media extremism and porn is just setting everybody up for unfulfilling intimacy and experiences. 
Very interesting. Okay, let's let's segue to something else, and I guess introduce the audience to how we met because we kind of sure. dove right in. Yeah, we really good. did. That was yeah, fast. we went straight to the ten <laughs> into the pool, and now we'll go back. So a number of years ago, a mutual friend of ours, Mayor Kay. Yeah. Um, who today? I don't know if you know. He's a breathwork therapist. Oh, I love that today. for him. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, um, I was sat in a, a breathwork ceremony with him not long ago, and it was awesome. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. It was just the combination of the breathwork with his um, hype. Like the hype man in the breathwork session was just freaking awesome. Nice. So we actually did it uh, back here. Like 30 people in the room was wild. Oh, cool. So shout out to uh, Mayor for what he's doing. So he introduced us a number of years ago because I reached out to him and said, um, hey, Mayor, do you have any ideas on how I can um, bring some awareness to the uh, problem of child sex abuse within the Orthodox communities? And he said, yeah, I know this guy, Max Dossel. <laughs> he's an awesome poet. And... Um, you know, talk to him. So you and I started working together on it and it was an awesome experience for me because oftentimes when I feel like I want to get thoughts out, it takes like a lot of words and it did take a lot of words for me, but you were able to distill it into a, I don't know, five or six minute um, poem. So that process of going back and forth and getting my thoughts into words was cool. And that's how that's what we met. It was, really, it was really poignant for me, too. I remember, I think, saying to you directly, being like, hey, there are people who have experienced this themselves, like, that might be better suited to talk about this than me. I was like a very, I was like, I'm going to give a voice to this thing that is so intense and so real that I have not gone through myself. And you said to me, you're like, no, it's because you haven't gone through this yourself. I want you to help us re- help help it relate to people who have not experienced it. And it was like, I was like, okay, <laughs> like a, it was powerful. And yeah, I think what we created was, was powerful and seemed to, seemed to touch some people. Yeah. It didn't get a bazillion views. Is that the measure <laughs> of success? <laughs> I guess not. No, but it did. Um, it, it definitely did touch some people and there were uh, a number of people who ended up getting involved. I think, uh, at some point this video component came in, I think you recommended someone for that. A number of survivors showed pictures of themselves at that in, age in that childhood video yeah. yeah so i think there was someone you brought into the project uh yeah like a, um the producers of i think it's yacht club films it's called which is a very pretentious name but there was <laughs> these nyu kids who wanted to help make it happen yeah yeah, yeah it was uh it was cool do you remember any of it any of that poem yeah two bodies intertwined limbs wrapped around one another two naked bodies lie in each other's arms exposed and vulnerable Two bodies forget for a moment that they're two separate bodies. Two bodies bask in each other's love and months later make a third tiny body. It's a miracle. I mean, have you ever seen a child's eyes light up? Have you ever watched a child comprehend the night sky for the first time? Blow the bristles off their very first dandelion, feel a kick in mom's belly from the inside? They're discovering how the world works, one moment at a time. And sometimes that very same world that brightened their eyes can be completely and utterly terrifying. But in time, it can all be fine if they have a shoulder to cry on. Someone to stand by their side, the pain and the fear can subside. But have you ever been alone? Can you even imagine alone when your world turns against you? When no matter what you do, people can't seem to understand what's happened to you, so they push you out of what you knew, what you used to love. The same shoulders you used to cry on, now cold shoulders. Ice cold shoulders, ice cold showers, just try and feel something other than the pain inside. Bury the pain inside, hide it with anything you can find to dull or change the pain inside. 
and at the end of whatever bottle you found, you find that you've been emptied too. They say time heals all wounds, but it's not true. It's not true when someone you trusted, someone you look up to, takes that trust in the world and they snap it in two. When they make you do what no child should do. But because you have the trusting eyes that children do, some part of you wants to. Because love is confusing and our bodies are confusing and our longing for belonging is powerfully confusing, your community chooses not to see the side of this being you were forced to see. You wish you had that luxury. You'd give anything for that luxury. But now every hint of what you know should be, beautiful intimacy, just reminds you of what used to be two bodies intertwined forcefully, two bodies that were supposed to be two separate bodies, and trying to deny it is just lying to yourself, and you're too damn tired of watching the people who shaped your worldview, the people you still love and admire, keep their quiet, their silence, sweep fire under the rug and calmly paint the house as if it isn't burning down from the inside. What good? is a community that turns its back on what it stands for when it's no longer what is easy. We have a rare opportunity to stand on the right side of history. We can create a world where men and women are afraid to commit heinous acts, not to admit they happen. We can create a world where the sick and twisted can no longer hide behind the shame they plant in victim after victim. After victim, after victim, after victim, how many more of our children have to become victims before we fight for a world where children won't be victims? We must take a stand, take a side. Standing idly by helps only the tormentors, never the victims. It takes a village to raise a child, and a village to abuse one. This is our village, our community, our children. Whose side are you on? Remember, it started, I think, two bodies. Two bodies intertwined, limbs wrapped around one another. Two bo- <laughs> <laughs> I remember we talked about the beginning being like, can we get like the meat of it faster? And as I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, it took a little bit to get into it. I see that. Yeah, but I thought Videos it... Videos on YouTube, though. Right. I, yeah, maybe we'll even um, cut some of that into into this. We'll see if our video sure. editors are good enough where we have to reach out to Yacht Club Films to, <laughs> to help us out with it. But um, yeah, actually, I liked what you did there, which was... We started off kind of like with intimacy and then showing how that gets destroyed through the process yeah, the of innocence, sexual abuse. Innocence and the right. innocence of a child. Right. Yeah. And also the, the sexual intimacy which creates a child and then that gets twisted and perverted. Yeah. And uh, what I would say in terms of measuring success that um, the Orthodox community in many ways is in a far different place now than it was then around the issue of child sex abuse. Beautiful. Like I'm glad I don't to hear feel that. the need to discuss it nearly as often wow was that what shifted i think uh that once it was understood how common it was i can't speak to all orthodox jewish communities there are ones that are much more insular than the ones um i've been a part of but once it was understood how many people were actually sexually abused and it wasn't these rabble rousers on the fringes but it was many people within the community who were members of the community teachers parents, I mean, everything. There was mm. a number of people who were sexually abused. And 
once that was understood, it's like, hey, this is, this is a problem that we need to deal with. But what that took is more and more people speaking about it. Like there was a time, just to be clear, was I didn't share it with my parents. I didn't sh- when I did share it with my parents, I shared it with one. Mm-hmm. And a couple years later, the other one. And then some of my siblings and not the others. So I'm sure that was going on in a lot of different communities and then you a lot of different families and then you think about that kind of you know multiplied across the community many people sexually abused who are not telling their own family members and then once that changed and i think it's changed in a lot of ways i'm sure it's not healed i'm just saying it's in a very different place than it was before once that changed then a lot of people understood oh wow this person is struggling because of that and then the questions start coming up they see someone um, using drugs or sh- struggling in some way in their life, and they say, "Hey, maybe they were sexually abused." You know, I often said, uh, "Often say in my case, I kept it a secret the fact that I was sexually abused, but I did tell the first person who asked. Mm. And the first person who asked happened to be in my twenties. Mm. I was a therapist, and he said, "Were you, were you sexually abused?" When I started describing some business issues, that question I would imagine today, like if I was. If I was a 13, 14-year-old dealing with whatever I was dealing with at that age, I would have got that question then, knowing how prevalent it is in the community. And that's what I think the, the real difference is. And, and a bunch of what we focused on in that video was the pain of the secondary trauma, right? Of when people were sharing that this happened to them, how common it was for family members to not believe them or to some, even in subtle right. ways, side with the abuser or let them back in the house and how, how painful that how, how much that can add to the trauma. And I, from just watching what I've seen of your focus and interest from, from afar of like within therapy and within trauma and how there's the event that happens and the story that we tell ourselves around it and how painful it can be when the thing that we went through that was so challenging, whether it's like, ah, it's not a big deal. I swept under the rug or no, they didn't. I don't believe you. Right. Um, and yeah, I'm glad that in any small way that we can contribute to more people just being mm-hmm. held space for and felt and seen and, um, in that subject, which just is a very deeply, can be a deeply scarring one. And I love the way that you've worked around it. Thanks. Through Appreciate it, that. not around it. Yeah, the, the one area of it, which I think is the most common abuse, but I've never figured out a way to deal with it, is sibling um, abuse. Like there was, there was a certain fight we took to it, right? That was like mm. some of the, there was an enemy that we were fighting to some degree, even though I tried to tone that down as much as, as much as possible, and but people are able to get behind that to some degree. That person's wrong. This person needs to be defended. But within siblings, that's a tougher, a much, much tougher conversation. And I think if you um, look at Orthodox communities and possibly beyond, the most common form of sexual abuse is probably a brother mm. sexually abusing a sister. But that I, I've never figured out a way to... Um, like address that as a community. And I, I still think there are a lot of people out there who dealt with it who are unhealed. And I actually, I like that as a sort of a transition into something that I think is really challenging in society. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, the special as well, but like we're so quick to, and social media helps us do this. Helps is not the right word. We're so quick to villainize each other. We're so quick to make some other wrong and some other bad, um, as opposed to like having an attitude of actual, like collective healing or care for like our quote unquote enemy. And when it's literally our brother, our sister who did something to us, there feels like a more natural, like 
and or but that's my brother and yeah honestly like i long for a world where in the ways that we've harmed each other we can feel all the pain and anger and rage and sadness and whatever might be there of like this was not okay and like and that's my brother who did that to me like that's my brother and so it's not like no, you're, you're like, you're gone or you need to go rot and die. It's like, that's my brother. So like what happened there and how do we also help my brother? And we feel so far from that just in terms of how we talk to each other, how we relate to each other, how we argue politically and our justice system. But that's the world I want to live in is one where we are looking at each other is the pain that we cause each other through that lens. That's interesting. So you're, you're saying there's something more than just um, helping heal that abuse. But if we can figure out that how a brother and sister can heal from that. Maybe that can kind of multiply within the world itself because that's really what we are. Yeah. Brothers and, and I, I believe that hippie as it may sound like that's what we're doing. Maybe a couple of layers removed, but brothers and sisters hurting each other. And what does it look like to actually want like healing for the abuser or actually want? Um, yeah. Nice. I'll stop there. Healing for the abuser as well as yourself. And it doesn't mean you prioritize the healing of the other over your own, especially when you've gone through so much intensity. But to genuinely care about that, that's loving thy neighbor as thyself, right? It is. And when you think about it, you know, going all the way back, the first brothers, one killed the, one killed the other one. <laughs> there right? you go. So, Cain and Abel. Right? And then, um, you know, in Israel and like a lot, you know, we'll remind... Um, many Jews and many Arabs, that we are brothers, right? You go back, like, that's that's what we are. But there's that fight that's, we fight as brothers almost. Only brothers can fight like Brothers this. fight sometimes. <laughs> More than sometimes. Yeah. Right. Not me and my brother, but, yeah, other brothers. Sure, right. sure. sure. Them. <laughs> All the other people. Uh, in terms of the special, right, which you uh, just released, word, Words That Move. So I watched that, and one of my favorite parts, um, I want to say favorite, one of the most memorable parts was the, the right, left, left, right, left, right, that whole, that political one, which I thought was um, really on point. I'm scared we don't actually care about each other, that you just want to impose your views on those who don't agree with you. I'm scared that in a time where our realities are defined by algorithms that are personalized, we won't take the time to leave what we believe behind. I'm scared that it's become so easy to share. We've forgotten how to listen that we care more about winning than listening when the only path to victory for anyone is listening if victory isn't conquering, but reconciling differences. And victory isn't conquering, it's reconciling differences. I'm scared it's become so easy to instigate our animal brains with rhetoric and headlines that sound insane, that there's too much profit to be made and power to be gained for media or politicians to do anything but fan these flames. So I'm afraid we've approached this point of rage where the fight itself is all consuming. And to the right side, the left side is the wrong side of everything. And to the left side, the right side is the wrong side of everything. When honestly, when was the last time any of us was right about everything? Underneath the kicks and screams, we all want peace. But that train has left, right? Now we've got some angry bodies marching in the streets like left, 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 right, left. Feels like the left feels a sense of righteousness and wants to right the right while the right thinks the left forgot why our founding fathers write those rights, right? Religious right trying to guide the left towards the Lord's white light while the left wonders how the right can sleep at night. But hey, there's no convincing a man of God he doesn't know what's right, right? If only they could be exposed to city life, right? 
where cultures intertwine in a bit more harmony while we leave human beings freezing in the streets like they don't deserve a place to eat or sleep, right? But how can those racist, sexist hicks be so naive, right? And how disconnected can those leftists fricking be, right? And could someone please tell me, like, what do we actually accomplish as we fight? Can we stop swinging and address the gaping bleeds, eh? When our back's against the ropes and the world we've come to know is fading to the distance as our eyes are forced to close, we have this opportunity to count to ten. This time to stop and breathe again. A brief moment of peace again. Maybe we could breathe it in. And remember then that as two boxers get too close to hit each other, they hug each other. And not because they love each other, but because when two people get too close, it becomes too hard to strike each other. It's hard not to smell the humanity on one another. It is confusing to see our reflection in our enemy's eyes. Helps us start to recognize where our actions might be misaligned with these identities that we've defined. When we let the fight take us over, we become unjust in our fight for justice. It's just this fight till someone's left bloodless. We create imbalance in our fight for equality. We see quality only where we want to see. We silence each other in our fight to be heard, as though beliefs could be changed by censoring each other's words. You know that point in a fight with a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, or wife where it's no longer about whatever it was about and you just want to punch every word that comes out of their mouth? It's where our country's at right now. And I'm afraid that we'll keep fighting right up until there's nothing left. But we got this great piece of land together. We got kids together. Maybe we can try and hear each other out. You want to talk a little bit about that special? Yeah, um, so this was, I love the work that I do in terms of this tech and social media work and trying to help kids live better with it. Also, what's closest to my heart is this poetry. And I had been performing this show live that was really well received and I could feel as it was soul feeding people. And then as it was, as the pandemic hit, I was like, how can I help the essence of these messages deliver through the screen? Um, and I turned it into this digital special. It's now free and uh, available. I hope we can link that in show notes as yeah, well. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's these pieces that I love. And one of them is very much inspired by, it's, it's nine stories, each is like a different perspective. Um, that is live action, animation, storytelling. It's it's entertaining. It's like a fun thing to watch. Exactly. You might hear like, oh, poetry. I'm about to watch poetry for an hour. It's If you have a, a thought of, I don't want to do that, it's probably not like what you're thinking. Um, but yeah, there's this one piece that in many ways was inspired by like a deep love of my father, who's a very like prominent libertarian figure. And I watched over and over again, living in New York City, filled with liberals all over the place. I watched people come over with the idea of like, this guy is such a monster for his political beliefs. And I watched my dad again and again, trying to be like, no, don't you see like, if we care about the people we're talking about, I have a very different idea about what actually achieving help for this group of people looks like. And I think you're really wrong about what you think is helping. And I think this other way is it. Um, and he's so crazy. He's been doing this for 60 years or whatever it is. Your 50 years. My dad is John Stossel. Um, and he's so good at arguing with this stuff. And, but like it, it cuts through. It's not like, 
you care about these people and, and, or I care about these people and you don't, that was so never it. It was, if we care about these people, if we care about our country, what is the mechanism that actually helps achieve the thing we're describing? And that's so not how we're looking at things politically. And what this poem is about is like that we're so angry at each other. We're so busy dunking on each other and like putting each other down in comments and on social media that we're not actually doing anything. There's zero focus on how is this actually impact? How is this policy impacting people that we are supposedly trying to support? Is it working? Like we're so busy proving each other wrong and being angry that we're losing the whole point of what we're doing here to begin with. And more than about any political party being in power or in charge, that's my, my biggest frustration is that we are, have been put into such a fit of rage that we're being totally incompetent and focusing on all the most distracting and not relevant things because we hate the other we hate our brother so much and it pisses me off so just to break this down a little bit people seeing your dad and then saying okay he's uh, today we'd use the term far right. I don't think that was something that throughout his whole. Career. Sure, I mean he's so not far right. Well, of course, but not. he so would be called that by some correct. people now. Yeah. Once you're not progressive, right, there's, no, there's almost only, only two sides now: far right and far left. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing else exists. But someone saying that to him and you saying like, "Wow, you really think this guy's a monster?" But understanding your dad and saying, "No, I'm coming from a place of care," and we may disagree on how to on what will work. And obviously these are very complicated things with moving stuff. I mean, we can't even figure out, like you said, you know, progress on a program within a school for social media. How are we going to figure out economic policy and know a hundred percent what works and what yeah, doesn't 360 million people. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Now it's global. So it's even, even more than that. Everything is touching everything else, but you're saying by and large, most people are coming from a place of caring. I do believe that, um, and I think that holds true for most people. Um, people who also rise to the top often in our society. I, I will be honest. I only recently discovered what narcissism was, and like that there is a category of people who, and you know, sociopathy that was more common than I thought of people who like genuinely do not seem to have the capacity for care and empathy for others. And that's out there too. That's happening right. also. But for the most part, I think people are caring and loving people who are doing their best. And I like in general, giving most people the benefit of that doubt um, and looking at each other through those eyes. Right. That's what I was going to ask you is that while I would agree that most people are that way, there definitely seem to be some ideas that are becoming um, popular or just in the culture that seem to be directed at pain or directed at, um, at hurting someone. Maybe what's an example. Good, good question. So I felt Certainly with a lot of the policies around um, the pandemic, damn, that's a word that's going to screw up the algorithm. Maybe three people are going to see this whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but the policies around the pandemic, that some of that definitely felt like it was coming from a not such good place. The, that's such a loaded statement that would be so hard to break down. But like so, so a policy felt like it was coming from a not good place. Let's, okay, let's break it down. Uh, so living in Florida, okay. right, and seeing um, how I'm not talking about the first couple of months where there was a lot of fear and we didn't know what was going on. And I don't know if a lockdown made sense or didn't, but it was a legitimate attempt at something probably where it started. I, I think in hindsight, it, I know it wasn't a very good idea, but we don't know. And we made a mad rush at this. 
um, when a year and a half later, kids are being masked in schools, and I don't know, Joe Rogan is talking about healing from COVID, and his face has changed color on CNN in order to make it look like he's sicker than he was, and they call it a horse, uh, and they call what he was taking a horse, um, horse dewormer. Right, when clearly this wasn't the case, and it's not what ivermectin was, and I don't know if it worked or didn't work, it's not the point, but there was um, there's a way to have honest conversation and a way to mix in a lot of so, stuff that feel ill So I hear you, and so I think I have a higher tolerance for this than most, partially probably from growing up in a lot of these conversations, but so I believe, there are there some people who are ill-intented? Sure, but I think for the most part, even those are coming from people who believe so strongly, like this thing is killing so many people and there's some people who just don't get it. Like I have a duty to tell this story this way. And so I'm going to, because I'm trying to protect people. I'm trying to save people from these very wrong, very scary, very bad ideas. I don't agree with that methodology and the way of going about that. But in terms of the story that that person is telling themselves in their own head, I think for the most part, it's one of like, I'm trying to be a hero and do the right thing because I care so much. And I think that's happening 98% of the time. Okay, I can accept that. With a lot, with some people who are just being like, I'm trying to grab power. I'm trying, like, that's there too. But I think the vast majority of the time, and certainly at our dinner tables politically, as we are arguing with each other, I think most of the time it is people who care deeply and underneath the anger is often care or pain or hurt or feeling of that divide. And so, yeah, I think, I think we underestimate drastically how much people have good and in- have people have good intentions and it's not 100% of the time but i think we underestimate the amount of time drastically okay i can accept that you're saying that even beneath like suppose whether you agree with me or not that that was a lie and an outright lie and everything else is that wasn't ill-intentioned that was for what they considered a great good right. and that was and the i think the it. amount of times it was outright lies i think were probably very few i think more often it was it was people who really believed what they were saying into the into the camera or the policies they were creating, and that was their trust information system, and they believed this is the important thing I need to say. Um, sometimes people are outright lying, and sometimes it's like I'm lying to try to keep my kids safe, which is, again, not an attitude that I think we should be having as culture, et cetera, as media towards a population. But I think for the most part, people are genuinely trying to do what they feel is is right and best for themselves and each other and the world. And I think there are exceptions, but most people, most of the time, I think are trying to help. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can accept that. I can accept the way you landed there. I I guess I wonder for mine, is there, is there someone shaking the box? Who? I don't know. What? Someone shaking that? You know the example of the, um, the red and black ants? Red and black ants? Yeah. No. I don't know if it's true or not true, but it's not, it's not. It's not the, not the point. Well, you're outright it's lying. True. You're telling everybody a lie right here on the <laughs> on this camera. It's because you're ill-intended. <laughs> so there's, the way it goes is that you put red ants and black ants in a box. They'll live very peacefully with each other. You come and shake it up. The red ants will think the black ants are the enemy. The black ants will think the red ants are the enemy. Hmm. And then they start attacking each other. So while I got don't it. know if this is actually true, the, if you put red and black got, ants, it so illustrates a point. There are definitely people who are shaking, shaking the box, right? Like, for sure, in many ways, these algorithms themselves are, are regardless the of anyone's Ill, Ill intent, shaking the box. Because the thing that rises to the top and gets more attention is anger. Like, anger 
works well in these algorithms. Right. So regardless of any human being trying to say, I'm trying to get these people mad at each other, the algorithm itself is shaking the box. Right. Had we started like going at each other in this conversation, if I didn't agree and we started doing that, that would have been a much more like for an algorithm standpoint, we could have got like a 30 or 45 <laughs> second clip that would have gotten much more. That's what you're saying. And, and maybe, but Meaning, also. And that's, and that's not because someone wants us to fight. That's because someone wants attention to their platform and what will work best is an emotion that will captivate people right. and oftentimes. And also there would be a more natural limit to that. And like we could demo it if we want. We can just sit here and go at each other. I'm fine with that. <laughs> like it's, but there is in my being able to see your face and your seeing mine and us having tone and us being here making eye contact, there are just more natural limits to like how far we're going to dehumanize each other in that context. That's and true. when there is a tiny little comment box or these little profile pictures as the only symbols of humanity that we see of each other, we don't have that same line. And it's like so much easier to other each other in that. And then like, yes, that's the thing that feeds well. More comments, positive or negative, is still more right. engagement, is still more traffic, et cetera. That seemed to work better. Not because someone at YouTube was like, ha how can we turn this world against each other? But there being like oh more watch time more engagement people seem to like this oh it's a controversial idea it's interesting we're pushing the norm we're challenging the right. ideas and these controversial ones those will rise to the top um zainab tufechki is a misinformation researcher who in 2016 she would watch videos of the trump rally and then she would get pushed more and more extreme authoritarian videos and then eventually just straight up Ku Klux Klan videos on YouTube. She'd watch a Bernie Sanders video. She'd be pushed towards more extreme socialism videos and then eventually the conspiracy left of chemtrails dumping chemicals out of the sky, like whatever that might be. She would watch a dieting video, be pushed towards pro-anorexia videos, how anorexia is just a healthy lifestyle. She'd watch a vegetarian video, be pushed towards veganism, and then towards how you shouldn't eat honey products because bees make honey products, and that's animal too. This isn't even necessarily politics. It's that a, you're never hardcore enough for YouTube. The algorithm is always figuring out of this idea that you are drawn to, what's an even more, wow like moment of that idea and can I you'll just maybe keep watching that so we will prioritize that and that and that and so this isn't necessarily even about politics or about like anger specifically it's just what worked at grabbing and holding attention and then we see all the consequences of that and what does our society look like when two billion people have been pushed towards the extremes of whatever ideas we are already most likely to believe like where we we're already in mindset of like these people are so dumb and just don't get it. And ha, ah, like you don't see the, in person, you don't see the hatred you see online. Like when you bring people together, like sitting like this right, across from each other. To, yeah, it's just. It's like road rage. And the, <laughs> yeah, it's so much harder that. to do outside of a car. Right. Like how many times you see that in the aisle where like one person cuts another person off in a grocery store and it turns into middle fingers and yelling at each other. Yeah, we seem to have natural happen. kind of buffers in that system that are not there online. Jonathan Haidt talks about it as like the Coliseum where like the shouts for blood are what's rewarded. Like we're having all of our political conversations in the Coliseum. Is that any way that we would design a society? I don't think it is. And it's, and especially during the pandemic, so much of our conversations were digital or the ways that we were seeing or perceiving the world were from this online system. So it just 
fed us, I think, even deeper into that. Honestly, but I, even, I feel from you right now, like an amount of anger towards what I assume is like progressive left in general, like that feels really deep. Like, I feel like there is a like, I can't believe how wrong these people freaking have it. And all this freaking like, I feel some of that from you. You that, feel it right here? The, I feel it now. Yeah. I As think, I hear you talking about some of these issues, I feel a charge. So it depends on what issues. It depends on what issues. Okay. COVID worked me up for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I saw some things in COVID that I would just were like, how, how are we doing this? Like, yeah. How can we be, be doing this? I, I don't think it's like. And also cool, beautiful, right. nothing wrong. And like, can, do you notice how that extends to people who support policies you disagree with? Do I notice how that extends? So like that frustration, that anger of like, these policies are, you have a feeling there these were, are wrong, things, these are awful, these are like, these are backwards and we need to stop this. That's right, in there was, you. There were things that beautiful. frustrated Right, there were things that frustrated me. So I'll give you an example of one that got me uh, worked up and maybe you can help me <laughs> process it. So being, I, I lived in Miami, like I said, throughout the pandemic. So one of the beautiful things that happened in Miami during this, besides for the fact that we're open and restaurants were open, you know, past September of 2020, uh, was we had a lot of visitors. And some of these visitors were from states that were locked down. And uh, I remember once with visitors from Los Angeles, and they asked that they not be tagged in any pictures or anything else because they, they don't want, don't people want to, to be see seen that they're social with other people. And I'm like, come on. Like, you understand that there are people paying the price with their businesses, with their children being locked at home. I saw what it did to my kids, right? Three and two years old being locked in a house. The, 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 just for a few months, the parks closed. And it's like, you want to push that to feel better around your friends? Like, that got me, that got the, me worked the up. The hypocrisy. That got me worked up. It's like, you're here now, chilling with us in Miami, but no one from your friends can see it. So those are the things. I want to say, like, progressive left or stuff like that. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not that way. I'm probably more um, understanding on most things than, um, than one may think or one may not think. It's make a difference, but... Um, there are some like there are some stuff around COVID which definitely got me. And so I really guess what I and just trying to, to loop it into the conversation, like one thing that I find challenging and fascinating is then so okay, so it sounds like you have frustration around the hypocrisy of these people who are promoting one thing and living their lives a different way. But that was a lot of it. That was a lot of what but, was going on, and, right? How many right. politicians that were was, seeing that was happening? Right. And that was happening a bunch too. The LA governor who was caught in the restaurant but also let's notice that we are inside of one right now of like a that was one experience you have with certain people that we are then very quick to assign to other people that we assume are doing the same thing the soon as soon as we see any shred of evidence for it or as i see someone supporting x y or z policy online don't even know who this person is but we see i don't know just a couple of of informational triggers that make me assume that you're probably like these people. And, and I don't mean to single you out. Like I'm doing this too. I think we are right, all, you probably did it with my yamaka. The, right? And then <laughs> to assume that I have a problem with the progressive left. The, oh, that's interesting that I do that. <laughs> I don't think I did that. It's possible that possible. I did that. Um, but the, but the amount of time and the ease with which that we are taking that thing and applying it to all sorts of people, like taking an anger about something specific and applying it generally, I think we're doing that a lot. And I think social media is gas on that fire. Right. And, and the lockdown and people being in that space was gas on that fire just by being further and further removed. I'm not talking more about the lockdown. I'm talking more about just 
I'm not talking about the right or wrong of it. I'm talking about the reality of it. Just right. poured more gas. And yeah, and how it fuels that same that same anger. I love uh, Tobias Rose Stockwell is an author who is coming out with a book on some of this stuff. And he talks about how, like, regardless of what happened, he has this beautiful slide that it's like, Bob does a thing. That's the headline. Then whatever it might be, like, we take that. All the different news stories are written about the thing Bob did. It's like, Bob is such a hero for doing this thing. Thank you, Bob. And then all the way to, like, oh, like, interesting what Bob did. Look what that did to the world, To Bob is such a monster for doing that thing. Look at all these people suffering while Bob did that thing. Oh, it's appalling. It doesn't matter what Bob did. But, like, we're all taking... These little thing, we're finding the evidence for what we choose to believe. Like we're taking every little detail that occurred. Yeah, just it's everywhere. It's like looking at social media through that lens as everybody just like using literally everything that occurs as evidence for why, whether it's the world is crumbling in the very specific way they think it is or whatever it might be, it's all over the place. It's just everywhere. And I find that frustrating because I really value seeing the humanity in one another. And that's harder to do when we're playing so much in this coliseum with all the gladiator toys. I hear you. Have you ever seen that uh, that video of two dogs barking at each other behind a fence, and it's like a violent, like they're going to rip each other to shreds? Mm. And as there's a, a human there who opens the gate, and each time he opens the gate, they kind of calm down and looking at each other. Mm. And whenever he closes the gate, they go back to this violent rage of barking at huh. each other. So it's kind of like that. It's like. person is opening the gate so much (laughs) i had um a few years ago um i was working on um like i think you saw the mic drop and telling stories in the community so there was uh, a few there were a number of women who were telling stories and some orthodox rabbis described some ill intent to what we were doing that this was about um i don't know trying to ruffle some feathers by having women tell their stories when in fact they just called us and asked for help Mm. sharing their story and then more and more of them were interested than were men, so just more women telling story, and they saw it as modesty issues and everything else. And um, one uh, orthodox therapist wrote like a scathing article mm-hmm. about um, the company and what we do and how terrible it is for people, and we're not therapists, and we're not licensed, how can we talk about these personal stories, it's dangerous and everything else. So I just wrote, I wrote a response to him, a public response, that you didn't even reach out to us you don't know anything about us. And you wrote a response that tells me everything I need to know about you. Like we never spoke. So that kind of quieted that down. But then I got a call from someone. He says, "Um, I don't know who you are, but I have an article ready to publish on everything you guys are doing wrong. And I saw your response to the other guy. (laughs) I saw your response to the other guy. So I don't want to make the same mistake. Um, I want to talk to you before I hit publish. Beautiful. It's okay. So we spoke for about 30, 45 minutes. Um, and this guy uh, actually worked in a, a recovery community and center and stuff like that. And that was a lot of who he supported. And he was coming from that perspective of in some way he thought this was negative. I don't, even, I don't even remember. He never showed me the article. I didn't ask about it. But after we were talking for about 30, 45 minutes and he learned that I also spoke about pornography and addiction and I was in recovery for a while, he's like, hey, would you come and speak at our center? 
And I, I said, sure. And it was cool to see that shift. Good to see that shift where yeah. this guy was ready to publish something about me and had all sorts of opinions based on and, a lot of other things. And, and when I'm, we spoke, I'm projecting something that isn't necessarily true. But my guess would be, let's say that he first hit publish and then had that conversation with you. I think the amount of cognitive dissonance that it would have taken for him to feel like he could extend that invitation. Like I think once we post or once we also have these public personas or opinions, it feels so much harder to like, whether it's backtrack or admit our, like our mistakes or whatever it is, which is also really interesting that the difference between just literally having that conversation before and after might've been worlds different where he might've just had dug his heels in a little bit more and not been able to find the common ground. And so sometimes it's really nuanced to even find how intensely something like that shifts. But I mean, honestly, I would be surprised if he right, first hit publish and then had that conversation, if it would have gone anything close to the same way, my bet would be no, both because of how you would be showing up <laughs> right, reading exactly. it and how he, he probably would have seen a different side of me, right? That, that, um, that communication worked well. Hey, I'm about to publish something. I forgot to speak to you before but he already written it uh, um, was much better received by me probably than right. It could have come sure. from both sides. Yeah, would He would have seen, seen a different side of you. You would have seen a different side of him. And it might've also even cemented even more how much those other stupid idiots just don't get it. I can't like it just, you know, how those experiences build like, and you watch a lot of these public personas go through this. It's like, Oh, I am watching. You're just like total give up hatred of the other side build as you're in the target of these public eye situations. And of course, like as you just, the, the comments pile up, it's hard for a human system to manage that. And I'm a big fan of like keeping at the empathy, even when like looking for what is the gold you're offering me underneath the nonsense you're spewing at me. So, so I love does, that attitude. So, so how does empathy work politically? Like who rises to the, the, the top in such a, um, I mean, Max Dossel's uh, like system. what, what team? <laughs> no, not, not, not even necessarily team because I think the teams have been blurred so far at this point. Yeah. It's like people say they're Republican or Democrat. And if you ask them to break down, like, give me like your 10 most important policies or your 10 most important beliefs, and you compare that to Republican Democrat of 15 years ago, you just yeah. have a, a completely different person. So yeah. I don't think it's about that. In my system like that, well, that falls apart. It's much more about like what is actually being accomplished here? Who cares about what? And is that working? And people who insist on seeing the humanity in one another, like that I think is a very unpopular in this moment opinion that that I have is like the value of insisting on seeing even these people who seem like they are out of their minds from what you've read about them on social media or seen like, no, them too. Like those are also our brothers and sisters and how do we actually move forward with together? I'm that's, that's what I want. Who rises to the top politically? I have no idea in that. And honestly, I don't pay that much attention to politics because it's such a cesspool. I would rather live my life. Um, and I think a lot of America is feels the same. She's tired of all of the, the mess and the nonsense, but those aren't the loudest voices. But you can't, you can't ignore it because it affects us. Sure. Well, I mean, yeah. I can, it just might well, not could, be a good idea. <laughs> right. Meaning even if you ignore it, it doesn't, it doesn't ignore go you. away. It doesn't yeah. ignore you. Like sure. It politically house. rises and can later be a big issue oh, or is one now. Of, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Historically speaking, I'm pretty sure that, um, most people won't want to say this, but it's not a Democrat or a Republican that's best for um, economic policy, at least. It's a Democrat president and a Republican Congress. Like that gridlock. Well, I don't even call it gridlock. That forcing people to work with people who you disagree with is kind of the best thing for 
the country. Economically. Right. Yeah. Like if you want my political view, my political view is that the worst thing would be to have one power, one party. A fully Republican f- or a fully Democrat. In full control anything. would be a disaster. The My dad d- would certainly agree. Well, like that gridlock, government's doing less okay. would ultimately be best for people. Right. I, I would pro- Politically, I'd probably consider myself a libertarian. Yes. Yeah. That government is bound to screw things up. I have a lot of leanings that way too. I think it's naive about race and healthcare, but we don't have to get into those things <laughs> right now. <laughs> but, right. The question is, right, that's, when you go there, that's a separate kind of, The libertarian view, which I kind of ascribe to, is that once you mix government in, you're going to have a certain level of problems. So only do it when you absolutely need to. Now is the question of when do we absolutely need to? And that's where things become very, very hazy, right? In a country like America, which could be a target, then military becomes absolutely need to. In a smaller country where you're not necessarily a target of others and maybe America can protect you, then military is not absolutely need to. So that's a question for that. That absolutely need to has endless discussions, but that perspective of, you know, even that we can go in there, like in healthcare and stuff, like a lot of these things, I, I really believe that so much of this, we should communicate more to individual communities. And you see it done very well within Jewish communities. And it would be amazing if that can be rolled out to more is when there's a medical issue, when there's a, an impoverished family, when there's homelessness, like this is solved often by the community on the ground and saying, hey, we protect each other unfortunately that often doesn't happen in communities so then what's the government supposed to do let that go to the wayside but that's probably the most efficient way and not only efficient economically but also um the the best way to give people the support is those people who they know like let me let me help them out they know the situation far better than a government a million miles away some bureaucrat signing a signing a check but sometimes you need to because the community hasn't stepped in. So I think it's, right, there's a lot of different factors to it. But I'm feeling you, out of my depth here. Right. If you wanted to, um, if you, just because you poked on the political stuff, I don't usually talk, we don't usually talk about politics here. But um, if you want, like, my political worldview is, is, more, that. Is, is, more, that. Is, is more towards that. And that's some of why COVID frustrated me so much, because you kept seeing, like, government saying, let's get a policy to make this work. Let's get a policy to make this work. It's like, no, let's not. Let's maybe not. Let's like, this is way too much. Let's maybe not ask the government to fix everything because you ask any company in America which ships product and we yeah, may use I'm, the post office. I'm definitely on team. Let's not ask the government to fix everything. We, we don't use it. We may use the post office, which we do in our company. We ship, we ship product, uh, but we do it for cheaper products because it's subsidized and, you know, it doesn't need to, you know, customer is not paying for top-notch delivery. But when you need something overnight on time and to be like as close to hundred percent security, you call FedEx or UPS and you say, can you please get this done? And there's a level of comfort that they give you that you'll never be able to get um, from the government. So that's, uh, so my, <laughs> that's my thoughts there, but I did very much enjoy and I only enjoy, but it resonated with me um, on your words that move special where you like really broke that down in very relatable words. I'm like, Hey guys, like, we've got to stop with this. I don't see the biggest issue as the left. I don't see the biggest issue as the right. I see the biggest issue as the, the, the level of disagreement that exists. And you're saying the solution to that is more face-to-face time. 
I'm saying it's certainly not having all of our political discourse <laughs> behind the screen. And so, yeah, and just trying, you know, I used to be on the team of can we align our realities? Can we be looking at the same movie? I think we're past that at where we are now. There's such inhen- intense divide of the reality that different groups are seeing. I'm much more on the team of like, can we just love each other? Like, can we understand you're looking at the world differently than I am and I'm looking at the world differently than you and you are my brother and how do we like coexist and cohabitate here without uh yeah without violence and without thinking each other are are monsters and I think that's where we're at you know where a lot of my political ideas come from running a business right so in a business one of the ways I've always thought about it is you want to build inherent tension into the system right you're going to hire sales guys who are going to go out there and want every single deal and you're going to have a finance department, which is going to say, like, let's check this 15 mm. different ways. Like some people jokingly refer to a finance department as a sales prevention department. <laughs> right? So, you know, hey, did they pass their credit check? Did they, you know, mm. all, of these other question, all of these other questions. And you're building this tension into the system so that the orders that should get through get through and the ones that shouldn't shouldn't versus saying, oh, no, sales are the way we make money. Let's give all the power to sales. No, you can end up with a bunch of customers who didn't pay or, you know, people with mortgages who shouldn't have mortgages, right? Things like that. So building that inherent tension in the system is what forces you to get um, the best way. And there are people who are, I want to say, like, when you think about a salesperson or a finance person, their personality is predisposed to one versus the other. That's who you're going to hire. So you're going to have one person who naturally is more conservative in their, not politically, conservative in their worldview, like, let me make sure everything checks out before I approve this order. And then a sales guy who's naturally more of a risk taker. And you're going to say, okay, guys, you two are a perfect match. And if it would work in a business, it would make sense to work at scale. Like, give me someone who thinks nothing should be changed ever and everything is perfect, like the conservative worldview. And put someone on the other side who thinks we got to tinker with everything. And it's like, oh, progress, progress, progress. And then put them in a room, and then where do they agree? And give them kind of equal power, and then say, okay, like we'll move things forward because things have to move forward, but not just because progress is good and we always got to tinker. So that kind of approach, exactly how that works at scale, I don't know, but we need to be able to do what you're, what you're talking about. I'm a big fan of everything in moderation, including moderation. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, in general, like I think there is... Um, I can also, it was just of nuance. Like, I, I don't know how to run a system of that many people. <laughs> like, I feel much more suited to solve individual problems in front of me. And, um, and yeah, try to try not to speak out, out, of, out of my knowing. Yeah, what I, what I would hope for, actually what I would hope for is an environment where people are, are that, that the better people are more willing to throw their hat in the ring. And right now there's such a price to pay for that. Hmm. I, I read in a, a book by Alan Greenspan, uh, the fact that someone is willing to do what it takes to become the president of the United States should automatically disqualify them <laughs> for the position. Right? So it's like, how do, we, how do we create an environment where there are people who are skilled enough to do this and they're not going to talk in ways that are going to have you cheering every 30 seconds. They're going to speak with much more tact and much more diplomacy and much more nuance. And, um, but are they, in order to step out and say, okay, I'm willing to throw my hat in the ring, are they going to have to deal with what so many politicians are forced to deal with? And I think until we create that environment, we're going to get a certain kind of um, 
person for so that's what I think about is how do we how do we create that how do we get better more qualified and competent people to want to be in these positions versus I, I don't know I, I wonder if like you, you mentioned if um, the couple percent right of people who are on a right, it's like there's 98 percent of people how many percent 98 percent of people are well-intentioned could we do the same with Congress can we, it's like the same 98 and 2 that we see in the world. We see the same 98 and 2 in there. And I think that because of right. the price that so many of the... Yeah, I don't think we see that as an I even... I don't think we see that. No, yeah, the type of people rising to, the, rising to those roles right now are... The people yeah, throwing their hat in the ring sometimes are like... Deep desires for power or for... Correct. Yeah, the, in, the intent doesn't seem to be Right, it's not the, the service-oriented model that you'd think of... Yeah. yeah, honestly, as we're in this, I'm like, but yeah, like, ah, we're never going to change that. Like, what? I'm like, let's move on to the next subject. Like, we're never going to, never going to change that system. But if we don't, like, if we don't, maybe we don't last forever. Like, no country has. Sure. And I mean, and I think, I think we're not going to last forever. I think there's going to be crumbling and rebuilding. And yeah. Right. This is interesting that it went to politics, not somewhere I usually go and not somewhere where, uh, <laughs> yeah. we usually go. Agreed. Um, one thing I had asked you originally when you put out the movie, like, hey, why don't you put it on YouTube? Yeah. And you put it on your own. It's words.move.com, right? Yeah. Words.move.com. So my answer was, I think yeah. my answer was like, because fuck YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> um, just like, yeah, it's something that feels sacred to me. And to put something that feels sacred to me in this environment that just felt so, such like a cesspool governed by the forces that we've been describing. It just didn't feel right. And I would rather it be seen by fewer people and then watch it like in depth and in an environment where they can really take it in than be seen by more people who are watching some of it. Um, that feels better for me. Um, and it feels more aligned with, I think what the art itself wants. And so, so is that, so is that driven by, I mean, are, are you driven when you're making that decision? And this is why here's about, it, is that what's the primary motivation in, in the art is the is it the impact of the art because it's sort of metaphysical of like honoring the art like these poems come through in ways that feel beyond me and as I think about like what is my role in getting those out I used to take like a more 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 attitude towards it that doesn't feel right for me at this stage like what feels more right is how can I like create a loving home for this art and YouTube doesn't feel like a loving home. YouTube feels like a, YouTube feels in some ways disrespectful to this, to this hour. I feel differently about like three minute segments and things like that. But this thing that I've spent in some ways, seven years of my life, like creating and producing. Yeah. I don't want that to be the place that I'm sending to people where it's, oh, then now watch the next, like, no, I want you to watch this thing that I made and I hope it feeds you. Right, so the reason I'm asking this is you're not you're not thinking necessarily of impact. You're not thinking of, and the reason maybe the pol the political conversation connects to this. You're saying like, hey, I'm just trying to like do my part. I'm not list. I'm not looking necessarily to impact on that level. It's just where I could and where I will. I will. think I've also come to really believe deeply in like the ripple effect, and also noticing that like in terms of measured impact, what does measured impact looks like, and all of the different things we miss as we try to measure. The, you know, and I'm still young, but like the, the older I've gotten, the more I've come to value what is invisible and intangible, much more so than like the specific things that can be measured and pointed at. And like, 
I value the deep essence, mushy goodness center of our existence and is greater impact. People, more people, more eyeballs on this is greater impact. Not necessarily more eyeballs. It landing more deeply in a specific human being and then the impact on that in the world. Like, I don't know. I don't know what that is, but my, I trust my instincts and my intuition, which is YouTube. And I want to put this somewhere else. No, it got me thinking about, um, about this as well, because that's been, it's I'm only a few months in, but um, there's definitely been a few times where I've presented, I've been presented with things that can, um, either ideas or actual interviews that could definitely bring this out to more people and say, hey, is that in line with what I'm trying to create? I, I think about it, I'm trying to impact one person deeply. Beautiful. As many times as possible. And, and it's also, there's something I think, powerful about like if you know that's your it's like oh getting this person on the podcast is going to bring more people into my audience and i'm going to be able to deliver more messages that matter to me that's the reason i'm having this person on i'm gonna do like that feels clean to me like that's like a it's aligned there's your intent in that and it's a different it's a different thing too a podcast is a series it's an ongoing like every touch point of it is not like the it um for me, this piece of art, like is it's the delivery of this thing. I'm coming on different podcasts, doing different YouTube things, trying to get more people to see this baby that I love. I don't want the baby to live on YouTube. Right. But if I think about the way most people interact with this podcast, like for example, this interview, so there'll be X amount of people who see it in its entirety or most of it, but there'll be a lot, many more, a hundred times, which will see less than 60 second clips of it. And I won't cut it and you won't cut it. It'll be done by someone else with their, their thoughts. And I've wondered about that as saying like, hey, putting some of these conversations out and so much of it is consumed knowing that, meaning it's not, some of what you've spoken about is that like, there's a certain algorithm that's going to happen. So I know that this interview is going to be seen, let's say 100x more times, and it doesn't matter what that number is, 100x more times in bite-sized clips than it is going to be seen in its entirety. And some of those things, like maybe you calling me out for this anger at the progressive <laughs> left or whatever else, that may, that may be some of what gets out there versus um, maybe some of the, the ways where there was a little tension that we were able to integrate because that's not as interesting. And I want to say it's not as interesting. It's not possible to capture in, in 30 seconds, right? The ebb and flow of this conversation will never be picked up in 45 seconds. And then sometimes I've had people comment and say, I can't believe you said that. Like, did you see the context? I, mean, right. I don't Which have to is, see the of course, context. lost in... I don't have to see the context. Huh. It was put out as a... Right. I'm like, how can I make sense? <laughs> how can I make sure to always make sense from any point in time? That's a lot which to is, think about. Yeah, which is insane. just going to weigh down your shoulders to an infinite degree. True, trying but to then play what that you game. did is you said, I'm just putting it out on my website. And if I get... And from an algorithm perspective, you understand that you're going to get one percent let's say of what you would would have got if you put it on a um another platform but i'm going to impact them deeply i'm just thinking about that for myself yeah and i'm thanks for reflecting on it and also for me like i also still like there are clips that i posted on other platforms like littler clips on posted those around on those on the tiktoks and youtubes Mm -hmm. of the world youtube i haven't done as much yet um but then for me like what i'm in control over is putting the whole thing that I care about so much in one place and letting that be the center. And then whatever happens on top of it, great. Like that'll happen. I'm going to be comfortable with it being chopped up, but it didn't feel right for me to take the, the thing, this thing that feels so yeah, just like sacred, sacred to me and just 
letting that home be this place where there's all this other stuff going on. And I would love for there to be a platform that is more sacred for art, like a place that would be where like other things where people felt like I feel about this and have it live among that. Totally. I'm in and like recommendation systems in that world. Cool. I would be, I would be much happier to put it there. Right. Um, but just in what exists now, just like, you can, no, I'm not, I'm not putting my kid in that school. <laughs> No, I totally get it. It's seven years of love, like you said. I got one question, um, an important one. Is that really your barber? And is that really your barber? Meaning, do you really have a barber who's a philosopher? And in the video that you put out in Words That Move, is that really, is that the guy? That is really him. His name is Derek Hake. He's a fellow barber in Williamsburg. And a what barber? Fellow barber is in Williamsburg. Also, or? Was the, a fellow barber. Know, that's the, the place is called fellow. Oh, barber. fellow barber. Okay. <laughs> it's what, in Williamsburg, Derek Hake, and he's wonderful. Um, he, uh, so my barber uh, is somebody I met. Yeah, we've become a close friend. He's someone I met walking into that shop, and um, he has three graduate degrees: one in divinity, one in cosmetology, and one in theater. And one of the reasons he cuts hair is because it allows him this one-on-one -on -one time to deliver his sermons. Mm -hmm. And my barber really is a preacher. Gives me lessons through the mirror. He spouts wisdom like a fountain that makes life a little clearer. Last time, he told me he was the Alka-Seltzer, witnessing his self dissolve into the world around him, knowing that's the only legacy he'd ever truly leave. As the pieces of his being dissolve into the existential sea and ocean of souls, the witness observing the pieces of his self that help others to grow as he lets his ideas of whatever self is go. That's a direct quote. <laughs> but my barber, he's a realist. His ideals are the idealist, but he's grounded in reality. Last time he said to me, who could live and actually be that witness all the time? Like who could watch their parents die and stand to only be the eyes witnessing life's tragic processes as they simply pass us by? And I reply, only those who lie and maybe the assholes, I joke. I expect a laugh, but no, he lets my crass avoidance go and gently brings us back to flow as he smiles and makes it known that no, Max, even the assholes get chapped. And assholes know better than most where bullshit comes and goes. We talk of love and loss and shaking off the scars that lovers leave with us. And he reminds me greater love is pouring in from up above that it's on us to open up to all that is awaiting us. Reminds me that in our 20s, we tend to confound love and need. And when the ones we love do leave, we look on them as though they're thieves. I feel that wisdom deeply. The thief who stole the part of me entwined in our dependency who left this hole and my identity. You are whole, he assures me. There's a gift she leaves as she leaves. By robbing you of her loving, she's showing you the Alka-Seltzer. That even when your heart has nothing left to bleed, your eyes and tears too hurt to breathe, there's truth beneath the pain you see your hole beyond the hole she leaves. My barber is a man of God. A fact I found a little odd when every Sunday he was taught he'd burn in hell for who he loved. He was deeply conflicted by his faith. As by some text that earned his place in fire for eternity, I see this tear drop down his face. He can't help but feel the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and yet the peace that haunts him most is his sacred, very own love for his fellow man. And I just want to reach out my hand and help him understand that in all of God's infinite plans, there's not a single one of them where he's not heaven destined. And so through the mirror, I look him in the eye. And though right is left and left is right, we connect in this reflective light. Our souls shine bright. His holy light shines right through the mirror. 
Sometimes I wonder if God himself is speaking in my ear. If God himself is cutting my hair. <laughs> if I'm looking at God through the mirror. And then I imagine how the world would look if every single person could recognize the way we should that God is in the mirror. It's so much easier to see divinity in others. Much harder to discover that it's God who's hiding under all this skin. We think of God as perfection, but anyone who created everything created imperfection. There's not a single emotion that isn't him. And so through the mirror, I look him in the eye. And mirrors have delays in time, reflections, milliseconds behind as light projects this false divide that I'm not you, that you're not I. And that's the work to live our lives embracing that connection, right? To see beyond elusive sight, to look inside and recognize the Alka-Seltzer. There's this play he loves to quote in which an angel shows this woman moments from her own past. And as they look on at her life, instead of back, as they look on, instead of back, the woman to the angel, she asks, do they know? Do they know? Does anyone ever truly realize life as they live it? The breadth and depth of this beautiful existence present with us in every minute? No, the angel replies. The saints and sages, maybe they do some, but never in all of its magnificence. The tragedy lies in the rift between what we perceive and all that is. This constant choice we make of finite over infinite, that we refuse to accept the fullness and completeness of this gift. It's a lot to take in for a haircut. <sighs> I don't know if I'm ready, I tell him. And he smiles and reminds me the jump from not ready to ready it's just a thought away. And we can make it any day. Okay, Max, you can get up to pay whenever you're ready. He holds up another mirror behind my head to help me see this part of me I rarely get to see. How does it all look? He asks. That's Derek, that fellow barber. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, man, that was beautiful. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. It was great to uh, hang out again. For sure. Thanks for having share me. The, uh, share the couch. We used to do this as a couch, but it's not much divided. Now the armchairs. Thank you. That was yeah. awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Absolutely. thanks for listening. Thanks Amen. for listening. Yeah. And I hope we can all see the God in each other. It's a perfectly good way to end it. Amen. That was perfect. I'm not going to add more to that. Thank you. Go to wordsupmove.com to see uh, more of Max and F YouTube. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>